Sometimes people have a view of things that happen that's not necessarily accurate to the facts of the matter historically. Uh, for instance, uh, if you were to ask a lot of people, what was the Civil War about here in America? A lot of people would say, well, the Civil War was over slavery. But if you were to ask people who actually studied the matter more thoroughly, they say slavery was a, a, a principle, but the greater argument was about states' rights, about individual states having the right to establish their own laws and ordinances. And so, really, the, the more accurate description is it wasn't so much about slavery specifically as it was the broader question of states' rights. So Civil War buffs would tell us that. If you were to talk about history, if you were to talk about the history of religious divisions, for instance, if you were to talk about the churches of Christ and the Christian churches and the division that happened uh, between them over a hundred years ago, what was the big issue? Well, a lot of people would say that the big issue was instrumental music. But actually, if you study that division a little more carefully, you find out that the thing that was really the impetus of that division uh, was the missionary society question. That was actually a greater problem. And then a secondary issue was the instrumental music question. So again, I think sometimes people have a view of what's happened in the past that may not be entirely accurate to the facts of the matter. I want to apply that kind of thinking to a subject that we know pretty well, and that has to do with Moses and Moses not being allowed to enter into the promised land. Last week we had a lesson from Moses, some of the things that he taught the children of Israel as he was about to die in the book of Deuteronomy. As we said last week, the book of Deuteronomy is sort of a, a series of sermons that Moses preached to the children of Israel before his uh, death as he was sort of handing off the leadership to Joshua. And the book of Deuteronomy contains those instructions. We had a lesson from there last week. I want to go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy to look at that text that Nathan read for us just a few minutes ago in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34. Notice Moses wasn't going to get to go into the promised land. Moses went up from the plains of Moab and to the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho and the Lord showed him all the land. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swear to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have Notice this. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go thither. Well, what about that? Why couldn't Moses go in? Doesn't that seem kind of unfair against Moses after all that he had done? Uh, doesn't that seem rather mean-spirited on the part of God that he's not going to let Moses go into the promised land after all the service all the work, all the diligent effort that Moses had put forth in leading the children of Israel, why couldn't he go in? Well, if you were to ask a lot of people that question, the answer they would give you would be what? Because he struck the rock, right? Remember remember that episode? They would take us back to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 says, There was no water for the congregation... Uh, there was no water for the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather the, thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. Notice there, he said, I want you to speak to the rock before their eyes. Well, it goes on, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? 
And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly. So he, he was told to speak to the rock, but it says that he smote the rock two times, and the water came. And so, if you were to ask a lot of people the question, why didn't Moses get to go into the promised land? The answer they would give you is because he struck the rock with his rod rather than speaking to the rock like God said that he should. We know that there was a previous episode where God miraculously produced water for the people in which Moses did strike the rock by instruction. And so here he, he struck the rock as he had done previously, but in this instance, God had told him to speak to the rock, and a lot of people would answer simply, the reason he didn't get to go in the promised land is because he smote the rock rather than speaking to the rock. Actually, sort of like some of those other historical misconceptions that we talked about just a minute ago, that's really sort of a historical misconception about what was really going on here. Notice, it says, uh, the problem was with him saying, here now ye rebels must weep fetch you water out of this rock. That was the real problem. And notice, the text goes on, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. The reason why Moses, for that matter Aaron either, but the reason they were not allowed to enter into the promised land is this reason. He says, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. So it wasn't really the striking the rock instead of speaking to it. It was more the problem of not giving God the glory for what was being done there on that occasion. That's why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. So I guess maybe our first simple lesson is uh, that we should be careful not to suppose something is correct or accurate just because the majority of people think that way or that's the, the way most people view an episode well, we need to make sure we've dug deeply and understood completely what's involved in any matter, and this maybe just illustrates that point. But for a few minutes this morning, what we really want to concentrate on, we're going to call our lesson, What Moses Saw from the Mountain. Uh, what, what did he actually see? He went up on the mountain. What did he see from there? And we're going to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. Before we go any further, we should stop and say, Thank you for being here today. I would add words of welcome to those that Anthony already expressed, to our visitors especially. We're glad you came, but we're glad for everyone. and appreciate the fact that you've come out on this Lord's Day to join in the worship of God. We thank you for being here. Uh, we hope that all will see this as a good thing, that you'll leave here feeling that you've been blessed by the time that you spent and invested in coming today. We certainly hope that God will be glorified by our worship this morning. We thank you all for being here. Let's talk about what Moses saw from the mountain. Well, of course he saw the promised land. There's no doubt about that. That's spelled out right. He saw the promised land, but he couldn't enter in. And we described the reasons why he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. But I want to suggest to you that he saw something else too. And we're using the word see here in the sense of to recognize or to understand. What did Moses understood, understand as he, as he stu stood there on Pisgah overlooking into the promised land? As he saw all that that was stretched out there before him, he wasn't going to be able to go in. What did he realize? What did he see in the sense of realizing? Well, I want to suggest to you that Moses could say very clearly that the end does not justify the means. Uh, 
the people needed water there at that episode. And they got water, right? And so the outcome was they needed water and the outcome was they got water. That was the end, but the end doesn't justify the means. His means and methods were wrong in not glorifying God. Mo- uh, Moses could have told you that lesson very emphatically as he stood on the mountain looking over at the promised land that he wouldn't be able to go to. He could say, you know, the end doesn't justify the means. I've learned that lesson the hard way, he could say. We need to learn that lesson too. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 22 and 23 are familiar to us. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Here Jesus is sort of painting a picture of the day of judgment and he, and he talks about some who are going to be rejected, but they're going to go, those who would be rejected, uh, those who Jesus is sending away. They're going to complain that they had done religious works, prophesied in the name, cast out devils, done many wonderful works. Look at all the good things we got done for you. It's going to be the argument. But Jesus is going to say, depart, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And the word iniquity there is, in newer versions, translated as lawlessness. They were workers of lawlessness. They were working... Religiously, they were doing good deeds by their estimation, but they weren't adhering to the law or the authority of God. So they would point to the end. The end is all these wonderful works that we've been able to perform. But Jesus said the end doesn't justify the means you used, and the means you used were not authorized. You were workers of iniquity. You were workers of lawlessness. The end result does not justify the means you used to get there Clearly, the end does not justify the means. Moses could attest to that. Lots of people could attest to that. In judgment, many will have to acknowledge that that's the reality. The end doesn't justify the means. I heard a while back of a woman who had a painful bunion on her foot. Apparently, she got heavily under the influence of alcohol, and she took a shotgun to her bunion to relieve the pain of that bunion Well, I suppose the end was that she didn't have the bunion anymore. But certainly, in that case, the end wouldn't justify the means. And it's never the case. We need to understand that. Moses could see that. He could see it in the sense that he recognized, he acknowledged that this is a truism. The end does not justify the means. I think something else that Moses could argue is that good intentions don't excuse sin. Good intentions. You know, people do things with good intentions that are sometimes very misguided. Another story that was in the news a while back was of of a teacher who, in trying to discipline an unruly child, had actually taken a marker and written something on the child's head. Uh, The teacher lost a job over that. Uh, Now, if you think about it... uh, uh, her intentions were to, to teach this, this, this unruly child a lesson. Teach a lesson. Well, that's a good thing, right? Good intentions, but certainly that's not the way to go about it. Uh, religiously, we need to understand that disobe- disobedience cannot be justified by good intentions. Now, those good intentions might be our intentions as a collective body to do good. Well, even if our intentions are good, we're not excused for doing things that are not authorized. 
In our personal, private lives, we need to understand that good intentions don't excuse sin either. And Moses would be one who could talk about that. Because I really think if we went back there to Numbers 20, where we were reading earlier, uh, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock and said to them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? The children of Israel were, in fact, rebellious, right? They were murmuring and grumbling. Uh, they had been casting off on Moses. They had even suggested we, we would have been better off if you had left us back in Egypt under bondage. So they needed a stern rebuke. There's no doubt about that, that the children of Israel needed to be rebuked. And I think that Moses probably had good intentions here to do that, to chastise them for what they were up to. And so Moses could have said his intentions were good, but he clearly did it the wrong way, right? By not giving God the glory in that, in that setting. So his intentions were good, but it didn't justify him doing the wrong thing. Plenty of examples of that. Even a number of Bible examples of that sort of thing. We could talk about uh, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion in Acts chapter 26, beginning verse 9, when Paul was describing his life before he became a Christian, when he was a Jew, a prominent Jew, an influential Jew, and when he was involved in persecuting Christians, casting them in prison, even giving his consent to the putting to death of some of those Christians. He said, notice, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority of the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And so here's Paul. Did Paul have good intentions? I think his intentions were absolutely good. He was sincere. He was doing what he thought he should be doing, but he was dead wrong. And so the, the lesson is repeated over and over again. Good intentions do not excuse sin. Another of the things that Moses could see as he stood there on the mountain looking over into the promised land, see in the sense of to recognize, to acknowledge, to know it's true, and that is that others may influence us to sin, but we're still accountable. You know, if you were to have an occasion to go to some prison somewhere to interview inmates in the prison, uh, I think you'd find a, a very consistent trend. There, there would be some exceptions, but the consistent trend among prisoners in prison is that they could all justify what they did. They could all excuse, make excuses for what they did. Most of the time, probably, those excuses would involve something about blaming other people. I did it, but other people caused me to do it. Or other people were the, were the reason why I did it. Well, of course, we understand that that's, that's not true justification at all. Uh, other people may have been involved in sort of tempting you or leading you in the direction of doing what's wrong, but you're still responsible for the wrongs you did. We would tell that to the prisoners in prison. Moses would say that too. I would tell you, if there was ever a man who was provoked, Moses was a provoked man. Uh, the children of Israel had been horrible to him and concerning him and he they had fought him at nearly every turn and Moses could have said well maybe I did sort of lose it back there in that episode at the rock when I struck it 
when I was supposed to speak to it, but when I, especially I failed to give you the glory for all that was happening. I acknowledge that, but you got to understand, those people were driving me crazy. Those people were just absolutely driving me crazy. Well, it didn't work, did it? Moses saw that, even though those others may have influenced him uh, to commit that sin, he was not excused. He was still accountable. Blaming others is the oldest trick in the book, right? As we've often pointed out in Genesis chapter 3, the very first sin, uh, when Adam was questioned about why he partook of the forbidden fruit, the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So, Adam's answer was, was the woman's fault. And Eve's answer was, it was the serpent's fault. We're just going to keep trying to pass this thing off. It didn't work, did it? Others may influence us to sin, but we're still accountable. We learn that in the very first story of sin uh, in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You're going to be judged. You're not going to be judged based upon what somebody else did. You're not going to be judged based upon what someone else tempted you to do or influenced you to do. You're going to be judged upon what you did. And an excuse said, well, so-and-so talked me into it. So-and-so influenced me. So-and-so provoked me. That's never going to be a, a justifiable reason for engaging in sin. And so, here's Moses, and he's standing on the mountain, and he's looking across into the promised land. Maybe in some people's mind it seems unfair or unjust that God would not let him enter into that great land. I mean, after all that he had done, about all the years and years of service leading these rebellious Israelites, as Moses looking across in the promised land and seeing that wonderful promised possession, but not being able to go in. If he thought, if he, he, if he spent time there, if you would have been able to interview him on the spot and said, Moses, what are you thinking right now? Well, Moses would have said, well, I see some things. I don't only see that promised land over there, but I see some things. In my mind, I'm called upon to remember that the end doesn't justify the means, good intentions don't excuse sin, and others may influence us to sin, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away our accountability. Finally, let me suggest to you that Moses would have been able to see clearly, to know certainly that the wages of sin will be paid. The wages of sin are certain. They will be paid. You know, sometimes what we hope is that over time, what we've done will be forgotten. And maybe we won't have to bear the consequence of what we've done. I rem you know, you can remember thinking back to times when you were in school and, and maybe you forgot to turn in an assignment. Or maybe even you got a, a bad score on a test. But you know that grading period, that's pretty long. You know, six-week grading period, whatever they are now. But I think they were six weeks when I was in school. You know, six weeks is a long time. And maybe that undone assignment, maybe that bad grade I got on, maybe that'll be forgotten over time. Well, you know, the teacher never forgot. And, and our, our grades were always affected by what we did. It may have been five or six weeks ago, but when the grades came out, uh, it was reflected in our grade, even though that had happened sometime before. I think we do that about sin. You know, we think that 
maybe over time, we never made it right. We, we did that and we never made it right. We never acknowledged it and we never sought forgiveness. But that was a long time. That's not just been a few weeks ago. That's been years ago that I did that. And surely over time that's been forgotten and, and it won't be brought up. I won't have to deal with that. No. The wages of sin are certain and, and time does not erase what I haven't dealt with in seeking forgiveness. Notice in Second Peter chapter 3, you know this passage, Second Peter chapter 3 beginning verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God wants, right? He wants us to come to repentance, deal with our sins so we can have forgiveness. But, notice, He goes on, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. We should never even imagine that God will forget or overlook our sins. He's patient. He's long-suffering. And He wants us to repent. He wants to be able to extend forgiveness to us. But if we don't do what we must do, time does not erase those wrongs and we'll still be held accountable. The wages of sin, what we've earned for sinning, are certain. And unless, by the grace of God, we've been forgiven of our sins, those wages will be paid. Moses could see that here. You know, when you think about that episode where he did the wrong thing at the rock, bringing forth water for the children of Israel, where he failed to give God the glory, how long had that been? Put together, put that together in your mind. Well, that had been over 40 years ago, right? Because he, he led the children of Israel in 40 years of wandering after that. The, this, this is an old story, man. This is something that happened a long, long time ago. Why are we bringing that up now? Well, time doesn't erase wrongs. And, and God had stated the penalty for that, and the, and the penalty for that was going to be carried out. Moses wouldn't be entering into the promised land. The wages of sin are certain. Moses could see that. He could understand that as he stood there on the mountain overlooking into the promised land. Some lessons from Moses that we need to understand. We've never been there. We've never seen that physical view that Moses had. But we ought to be able to see the lessons that he learned that he could recall as he stood there looking into the promised land. Important lessons for all of us. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We'll be asking you, what do you see? What do you acknowledge about your own situation? If you're not yet a Christian, we hope you'll make a decision to become one. Through hearing the truth and believing it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's the plan of salvation. Will you obey that today if you're not a Christian? If you are ready, we're ready to assist you. If you need study, we're ready to study with you. Let us know how we can serve you in that way. If you are Christian already, but you've not been faithful to the Lord, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we sing this song.